today on Ag News Daily. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say there's almost been more opportunities in um, the alumni and supporters level than I, I had during my high school years. Happy Friday. Yay. Here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, Delaney Howell joined alongside Jennifer Holiday once again. Jennifer, what do you know today? Not a whole lot. Um, actually, early in the morning, looking at embroidery machines. So just got to follow those interests no matter what time of day it is, right? I guess so. And I always, I got to tell you, I usually associate that type of thing with like nice, cute little old ladies, but hey. <laughs> whatever works for you now I feel called out here <laughs> no it's okay I I truly do believe I am a little old lady at heart sometimes that's okay we'll take it Tanner's <laughs> probably a little old man he wouldn't like me saying that but I'm gonna tell him that <laughs> well I'm sure he'd get a good laugh out of it yes absolutely and he'll be back on the podcast with us next week we'll be uh down at Commodity Classic, talking to folks down there and seeing what's going on. But we do have confirmation that Secretary Vilsack will be keynoting. I believe he speaks on Friday morning, next Friday morning at 8.30 a.m. in Commodity Classic. And so during his remarks, he's expected to highlight maybe some farm bill efforts, what the USDA has been doing to create new and better markets, increase competition, lower costs, and add value back to the farming communities. So he headlines Friday morning at 8.30 a.m. again on at a Commodity Classic next week in Orlando. Awesome. That sounds like it's going to be an amazing trip down there to Commodity Classic next week for sure. Yes, I think it should should be pretty good and hopefully get to see some of our listeners down there as well, Jennifer. Absolutely. And jumping into my first story of the morning, I have rural electric companies modeling impact of electric vehicles. Rural electric providers are preparing for the potential impact that increased electric vehicle use could have on the electrical grid. Head of Rural Electric Convenience Cooperative, Sean Middleton, tells us his company is investigating where there are shortfalls in hopes of preventing outages that are caused by the added stress from charging EVs. If they were spread out and they come in slowly, it's not as big of a challenge, he said. But the problem is, is when there's a concentration. And I think that's where many operators have to evaluate parts of their system to see what they could do. He also says residential areas and subdivisions pose a challenge for extensive rebuilds because it could require the installation of new underground cables or larger lines. CoBank Energy economist Terry Viswanath tells Brownfield the distribution network for the current electric grid was not designed to handle the charging needs of widespread electric vehicle use. Depending on the charging patterns, they may need to invest somewhere between 1700 to 5800 in grid upgrades per electric vehicle, she says. As a result, consumer rates would increase by about 12%. Vizwanath says the car's battery would be part of the solution for stressed networks, since once cars are charged, the, demand, the power demand slows. But she says more research and consumer education are still required. 
So I thought that was an interesting look and information to see on electric vehicles within our possible future. Yeah, and I think there's still a lot of questions to answer there. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, and it's still really not feasible for rural America. And every time, you know, officials have been pressed to answer questions about how they intend to go about implementing it in rural America, really, they don't have a lot of answers, Jennifer. Yeah, I definitely can understand how it would be harder for rural America compared to urban parts of the country. Well, one thing that is also continuing to be a struggle for rural America has been the supply chain and actually sourcing new or new to you equipment. I know Tanner's been following alongside this story pretty heavily here, and he uh, may have touched on a few of these pieces, but the Association of Equipment Manufacturers or AEM recently surveyed quite a few of their members and found that of the 179 companies surveyed, 98 are still, 98% are still experiencing supply chain issues, while 58% are experiencing worsening conditions than we saw in COVID. The most sought after components right now are tracks and they're including components. Only 27, 27% of optimal inventory is available. And in both the agriculture construction and other sectors related to industrial semiconductors and chips are also still in short supply. Only about 47, 44%, excuse me, of optimal inventory is available across both sectors. And then lastly, wiring harnesses. I didn't realize this were often made in Ukraine. So those are continuing to be in short supply as well. So This year, it's not they're saying a question of if you're going to be able to source fertilizer, as we've talked about, that's uh, mostly kind of settled down here. It's are you going to be able to source the equipment or pieces you need to keep things rolling along in the fields, Jennifer? And looking at my next story, I have an update on the National Milk Producers Federation discussing the new milk label guidance that is going through legislation. The Food and Drug Administration recently issued new guidance for labeling imitation dairy products, as I mentioned the other day here on the podcast. But Alan Bayerga with the National Milk Producers Federation tells us the FDA went partway towards stopping imitation from using dairy terms. Although it's not everything the dairy producers wanted, Bierga says imitation product producers are now guided to disclose the nutritional deficiencies of plant-based products if they want to use a dairy term. We think this is going to have a profound effect in the marketplace because as companies take a look at this guidance, would you truly want to put contains 50% less potassium than milk on your label, Bierga said. He also mentioned the potential is there to help consumers understand the difference between dairy and non-dairy products. It really is a powerful tool, tool, potentially, if the guidance is actually followed to reduce some of this consumer confusion over nutritional content we've seen in the marketplace. He went on to say if the FDA really wanted to eliminate the confusion consumers have about the differences, between real and imitation dairy products, the agency would follow their existing rules on standards of identity. Bierga says the Dairy Pride legislation recently introduced the Congress in Congress 
would force FDA to actually enforce those rules. Senator Tammy Baldwin, who co-authored the Dairy Pride Act, continued to tell us that the bill has more support at this time and is now suspecting that it will get attached to the new farm bill. So I say that is great news and updates on this legislation, Delaney. It certainly sounds that way, Jennifer. And we're continuing to see some posturing happen between both the U.S. and Mexico in relation to the GMO corn dispute. Kind of the latest shots fired. And really, it's nothing new. It's just kind of continued um, verbiage here that's been shared by Secretary Vilsack. And he just continues to share in public that if Mexico doesn't follow suit and abide by the USMCA agreement, then it's going to be taken to a dispute panel under the USMCA agreement. And there are going to be repercussions for Mexico. He said there are concerns. These concerns are quite serious. Mexico's policies are not based upon science and they would cause serious harm to U.S. farmers and Mexican livestock producers and can stifle their innovation. So corn for food uh, compromises about 21% of Mexican corn imports from the United States and obviously is a very big market share for the U.S. And so it sounds like the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, uh, the USDA, all of these folks are very adamant that if Mexico doesn't make some concessions here and call this thing off, uh, things could get ugly over the next few years. And jumping into my last story I have this morning, focusing on the farm workforce. While much of the ag industry has struggled with labor shortages, the CEO of Sunripe Certified Brands says his organization has had the opposite problem. John Esformas told attendees of the recent Ag Outlook Forum hosted by the USDA that his company has more workers inquiring about jobs and positions available. They sent word out after the first season to workers in Mexico that were in a fair food program farm and the experiences are different there than in other agricultural cultures. In the fair food program, buyers and growers implement a code of conduct that outlines protections for farm workers. The program was launched in 2011 with an expansion in 2015. Lupe Gonzalo, who is part of the coalition of Imolaki workers, says the program has provided significant improvements for farm workers. We can make sure that we're the monitors of that, she says, to make sure that we're that the food produced wasn't by, produ- but wasn't by workers who were being harassed or threatened with violence, or that we were facing any of the abuses that for so long we had to. The Coalition of Amalaki Workers is a worker-based human rights organization internationally recognized for its achievements in fighting in human trafficking and gender-based violence at work. The CIW also has developed a worker-led market-enforced approach to the protection of human rights. There are nearly 20 growers across the U.S. currently participating in these programs, Delaney. Yeah, and I think um, labor and worker safety and worker programs such as that are going to be, uh, could be a contentious point in the next farm bill that we see, Jennifer. 
Absolutely. And I think that would be great information for safety and just for education as well. Well, Jennifer, I have, uh, I think, one final piece of news here. And I'm still kind of digging, but uh, Case Hoisinga, who we've had on the podcast before, Ukrainian, Ukrainian farmer, sent me um, some information about a new issue that has started to arisen for Ukrainian farmers and grain crossing. And that's the fact that border crossings with grain coming from Ukraine to Poland via rail, truck, etc., are now being deliberately slowed down and load time or inspection time of the loads, I should say, has nearly doubled to tripled. From the Polish side, they are doing their best, it sounds like, to accommodate the influx of grain, but the bureaucracy has understood that a lot of grain is now flooding into the Poland market, which has put a lot of downward pressure on their grain prices. And it sounds like action from the EU needs to be taken to help kind of with some relief for both of these two countries. But unfortunately, Poland has made the decision to increase the security and inspections to kind of slow the flow of grain coming in from Ukraine into Poland. And that is certainly impacting the Ukrainian farmer as well as the Polish farmer. That's, you know, one piece of the puzzle we really haven't talked about so far is because we've been so focused on, on looking at how Ukrainian farmers have been doing, but other farmers are also getting impacted by just the flux of grain coming and going now, as well. It sounds like. Yeah, that definitely sounds like good information to stay updated on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this isn't something that really anyone in the media has picked up on yet. I've, I've tried to search this story just to see if anyone out there is aware of this going on. So like I said, the Ukrainian farmer sent me this directly. He also sent me some documents from officials that are very official. So I'd like to think it's likely true. It's a little hard to read between the lines of the document because they don't come out explicitly and say that the Ukraine grain heading into Poland is impacting their farmers negatively. But I think the the indication is is definitely there. But just one other piece of news here to watch as we continue to see the Russia-Ukraine story continue to unfold. But I tell you what, as we head into opening session here, Jennifer, we're finally seeing a little bit of positive trading momentum heading into this Friday morning. Maycorn up three and a quarter cents in the overnight to open at 637. Dece new crop corn is up just a half a cent at 571. In the soybean pits, the May contract is up six and a quarter cent to open at 15, 15 and a half. November new crop beans are up a penny and three quarters to open this morning at 1369 and a quarter. May hard red winter wheat up five and a quarter cent will open at 831. As we take a look at the livestock markets here today, they're having the opposite story heading into this Friday final trading session of the week. April live cattle down a dollar oh two and a half will open at a buck sixty four ten. April feeders unchanged to open at $1.9385 and April lean hawks down $1.10 to open at $83.85. Jennifer, I'm super excited to turn it over to a conversation you helped us set up looking at 
FFA and how it can continue uh, to make an impact in your life post high school and college. So let's turn it over to a conversation with Allison Cox. We are catching back up with a voice we haven't heard on the podcast in quite some time. Allison Cox, who you may remember from a past ag grad 30 under 30 class. Allison is a project manager for John Deere and involved in John Deere's corporate affiliate chapter with the National FFA organization. Allison, super excited to catch back up with you. Tell us what have you been up to the last couple of years since we had you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Delaney. And it is crazy how how time flies. Um, so some things that are new and some things that that haven't changed. But um, yeah, I was not a project manager several years ago. I've actually only been in this role for a few months now. The things that are similar is I'm still really focused in the precision ag and technology space. Um, but as a project manager, I'm more focused on go to market and marketing activities. So different than um, you'll remember from my previous background and with an undergrad in engineering, definitely a, a less technical role, but a lot more customer and dealer interaction, which has been a lot of fun. Um, and then on a personal side, still involved with FFA. That was something, you know, that was true uh, several years ago. But recently, within the past few years, the National FFA Alumni and Supporters Advisory Committee opened up two new roles. Um, on the committee to allow corporate chapters to be represented at the national level. So that's kind of what I've been up to the past few years. Well, this is perfect because National FFA Week was last week, and it's always fun to see people sharing their old photos of their blue and gold jackets. But as a past FFA member myself, I often think, you know, how can I be still involved in FFA? It feels like or it has felt like an outsider looking in like, oh, it's just really an organization for high school and college students. But that's certainly not the case from your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say there's almost been more opportunities in um, the alumni and supporters level than I, I had at, during my high school years. For me personally, I was actually only in FFA for two years. A lot of our really involved members on the FFA alumni and supporters, whether it be board at the at the national level, I'm also involved at the state level here in Iowa, um, often are actually just supporters. So there's really a lot of opportunities, even for those that didn't have the chance for the blue jacket while they were in high school. So, Allison, what is a corporate chapter like what you guys have there at John Deere? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, we actually currently have around 30 corporate chapters across the United States. And so that number, we're continuing to see that grow each year as different, um, even non-ag companies really kind of step up and say, you know what, we have a lot of people in our organization that either are FFA alumni or supporters. Maybe they have the kids themselves that are in FFA and seeing the impact it has on them and just want to give back. So corporate chapter is really similar to like a local FFA alumni chapter in a sense that its main kind of goal and mission is to give back. But often we can do that at such a larger scale. So like, for example, last week during Give FFA Day, um, corporate chapters are absolutely some of the biggest donors during that day and corporations in general. Um, John Deere personally is, has been a big advocate and donor and sponsor for FFA for I think almost going on 80 years now. And so, yeah, at the corporate chapter, really similar to think of, you know, your, your local alumni chapter, but really, again, with the resources you have at a corporation level, 
um, that just kind of furthers our impact that we're able to make. And with your role specifically on the board, what does that entail? Yeah, so our National FFA Alumni and Supporters Advisory Committee, it is a mouthful, but really we are able to be people that are involved across the U.S. with National FFA Alumni and Supporters, whether that be local, state, or corporate chapter level, and be the representatives and liaison between the boots on the ground, FFA alumni who are volunteering, donating, giving back each day, National FFA. So really our main responsibility is to listen and you know hear the ideas, concerns, questions of the different chapters that we represent. So for me, that's our 30 corporate chapters and just be that liaison to National FFA and saying, hey, here are some resources that we could really benefit from and could really help take our giving to the next level. Or here are some questions we have and we wanna know what are the best practices? What are other corporate chapters doing? Um, and that's also true for the other representatives on the board that again are either representing, you know, maybe their state level or really we uh, break that down into a regional level. Um, as well. So you're kind of wearing, I'm kind of wearing my deer hat on that board in some ways, but really it's bigger than that. It's like, what can national FFA do to help companies and organizations have a greater impact? Allison, I know for me personally, I'm guessing it's the same for you. FFA really had a big impact on on my career path. I mean, it helped me experience from CDEs and SAE projects I places I knew I wanted to get more involved in in college and explore as career paths and really helped me, I would say, kind of pick my career path I found today. I'm guessing you feel largely the same. Yes, absolutely. How has it impacted or how did it impact uh, that choice for you specifically? Yeah, um, I would say it really didn't start until FFA for me, my passion for agriculture. And so as an FFA member, I'd say my eyes were really open for the first time that not only did I have a passion for ag, but I specifically had a passion for ag equipment. And so I'll, I'll really never forget my first you know, national FFA convention, which was really my first opportunity to interact with Deer and company employees. You know, I knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to work in the ag industry, in specifically ag equipment and had a lot of, um, brand respect and appreciation for John Deere. And so, yeah, I would say just one growing the relationships at a young age. Some of the people I remember I met in National FFA convention, whether they were there representing a different department or HR and helping kind of recruit long term. Um, those are still some of the same people that I see today. And, you know, it's really cool to see it come full circle and I make it back pretty much every year that I can at least the National FFA convention to work the booth. And it's just really fun to see students on the other side and remember that I was once in their shoes. So starting those relationships and connections early, um, carrying them on through wherever they go to college or whatever they do after high school, um, and then seeing if long term we can either support them, whether that's through a career opportunity or through as a customer of John Deere. Yeah, it's always fun to see the young people coming up. And I'm always just so impressed at the way they hold themselves and their ability to speak. And I always think like, was I that good at that age? But it's fun to watch them too. Oh my goodness, yes. So yes, I, I would say it's 
I really, there's kind of three different levels, right? That you get a chance to give back as an FFA alumni, again, or supporter, even for those that weren't in it themselves. It's really the local, the state and the national level. And all three offer kind of a unique perspective. So even just last week during Give FFA Day, you know, you were able to give at a state level as well as a national level. Um, companies like John Deere, and I know many others are the same last week, were really welcoming to people taking some volunteer time off to go judge a local competition or interact with students and actually go into the local high school. And, and again, building those relationships within your community is just as important at giving back at the national level. And so I'm passionate really about all three. I think all three offer kind of some unique opportunities, whether it's at a national level in my position on the advisory committee and going to national convention but at the same time nothing really beats you know getting involved in your community and getting to know your local ffa members and and just kind of watching them grow up and being where they end up absolutely and allison you mentioned state local and national are there is there a good place for people to go who are listening and thinking yeah it's time for me to be reinvolved in ffa what's a good place for them to go to look at opportunities to be involved yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of different ways, really. Um, I would say two places I would recommend going to FFA.org. We have specific pages dedicated to alumni and supporters. So that's just really a great information hub that I believe there's a button that even says join now or learn more. And so that's going to be a great place to start if you don't know where to start. The second thing I would recommend that is fairly new to National FFA is they kicked off something called the Forever Blue Network. And you can kind of think of it as LinkedIn for FFA alumni and supporters. And so there's nearly 3,000 registered members. Again, it just opened up about two years ago, um, but it's really kicked off since then. And it is just that it's a networking site for people looking either for volunteers for FFA, or maybe you're on the other end and saying, hey, I have time or money to give. Uh, where do I start? And so that's a great platform to get connected at really any of those three levels that we talked about, the local, state, or national. Fantastic. Allison, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. It was great chatting with you again. Well, again, that was a great conversation there to talk about how you can still be involved with FFA as an adult. And I, I really hadn't realized that there were these corporate chapters you can get involved with. Absolutely. I did not know about them either. So I think that's great knowledge that not many people, whether they were involved in FFA or not, knew about. I do as well. So certainly something I'm going to be looking into a little bit more to see how I can stay involved in FFA. But I'm sure quite a few of our listeners were also involved in FFA. So hopefully they felt a little inspired to even just help out with their local chapters. Most definitely. I can agree with that. Well, Jennifer, I think that does it for another week here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. What do you say? We let the people go. Let's let them go. Let's let them go.